The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of the New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport. Lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the European, please join us. Subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, which of course you are, you probably think Britain should be in the European Union. But should Ukraine be fast-tracked into it too? And is one of the lessons of the invasion of Ukraine that the European Union needs an army of its own? In this episode of the New European Podcast, I'll be exploring those questions with the writer and the broadcaster, Mark Mardell. We'll be getting your thoughts on Partygate, and we'll put more blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into our Hall of Shame. So welcome to this podcast. My name's Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us keep on doing it, then please join us at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. So the first party gate finds her through, acknowledging that the law was broken in Downing Street during the lockdown. And naturally, the Prime Minister is still refusing to acknowledge that the law was broken in Downing Street during lockdown. You are just going to have to hold your horses, he said. Well, the stable doors open, the horses have gone to an illegal horse party, and the stable lads have all been given fixed penalty notices. What could Boris Johnson have said instead that would have been less pathetic than just hold your horses? Well, he could have channeled Will Smith's 
batshit acceptance speech at the Oscars, I suppose, and said, in this time in my life, in this moment, I'm overwhelmed by what God is calling me to do and to be in this world. I'm being called on in my life to love people and to protect people and to be a river to my people, even when they break the lockdown rules. I know what we've got to do to, is to be able to take abuse You've got to be able to have people talk crazy about you in this business. Like when Keir Starmer says, I'm a liar, just because I am a liar. You've got to be able to have people disrespecting you and you've got to smile and pretend like that's okay. You know, Jacob Rees-Mogg said to me a few minutes ago, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you. I want to be a vessel for love, but love will make you do crazy things. And then he leans over the dispatch box, slaps the leader of the opposition in the mouth and shouts, keep the party gate fixed penalty notices out of your effing mouth. Now, some more thoughts on party gate. And we asked listeners of this podcast, which politicians would you least like to be trapped in a corner lot with at a Downing Street party? Lisa P says, Matt Hancock, obvious reasons. Clive says, Two minutes listening to Jacob Rees-Mogg and you will be begging for the sweet release of death. Uh, and Jake Matchett, Georgina Osborne, Myrie Tognin, Ian Woodall, Jackie Ballard and many others agree they all say Jacob Rees-Mogg too. Tully says he would hate to be trapped with Marc Francois talking about his old dad and the Second World War. Jeremy Newman said, being a fan of literature, I would be hate. I would hate to be trapped next to Nadine Dorries. Paul the Stevens said, imagine if Nadine Dorries started telling you the plots of her novels. Could be worse. She could tell you what she does for her day job. Ollie FLJ says he'd hate to be trapped with Desmond Swain. Why? Because he is Desmond Swain. Uh, Rob Monroe said Nigel Farage because I'm allergic to nicotine and to frogs. Nell in Brighton says, I would hate to be trapped with David Frost. He would boast about how he'd organised the party, then he would tell you all the things that were wrong with the party. And finally, Sarah Gadd said, when is this party? Whenever it is, I'm washing my hair that night. Now, returning to the New European Podcast is a journalist and broadcaster who will be familiar to you from Newsnight, The World at One, the Brexit A Love Story podcast, many other things. He's also the author of several excellent pieces for the New European, most recently on why the EU should consider fast-tracking the application to join from Ukraine. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark Mardell. Before we get into Ukraine joining the EU, you recently wrote for us about something that the idea of which would have sent shivers down the spine of a Daily Telegraph reader, a Daily Express reader in the good old Brexit days. Now it seems like it's quite a good idea. The idea of a, a new European army. I tell you what, it still sends shivers down their spines. I get daily alerts for European army and nearly every day the Daily Express writes something about it. Even today, They've said about Denmark having a referendum because they're being bullied by the EU into forming an army, which is rather a weird take on it. It's actually Denmark holding a referendum uh, <laughs> because they want to have more defence cooperation. Yeah, I mean, I was struck doing some research for my book on Brexit, my lengthy project, that originally, before the, the common market, was merely a, a make-weight, something that they went for as a second, very much a second best, because the idea was the original Guyan and coal community should be joined in a political union by a defence alliance. It never happened because France 
and the goalists didn't want it. They weren't in charge, but they still didn't kicked up a fuss about it. But nevertheless, I sort of started musing how much different it would be today if the EU did have some military might behind it. Is it a good idea? I mean, I think the idea of a European army isn't going to happen as such, but it's it needs more military muscle. I think everybody agrees that. And there are various technical things they're doing that will give them more more ability to act. I mean, we see we see European Union sort of peacekeeping forces around the place, don't we? But I mean, the, the last two months wouldn't have happened if there'd been a stronger force, surely. Not if it had been there from the start. Not no. if it had been there and adapted. I mean, of course, NATO's fear is being dragged into a war, so you've got to calculate that as well. I mean, the, most of the EU, I mean, there's a very wide overlap between NATO and the European Union. So if there had been a stronger force, would they have also had the same sort of worries about getting into a face-to-face conflict with Russia? But I think one of the reasons Putin's taken this action is because he he sees that and also thinks that the West is in decline maybe he's got a point, and hasn't been spending enough particularly, I mean, whether you're talking about NATO or the European Union, hasn't been spending enough on defence. Now, we've seen a rapid, rapid change. I mean, dramatic changes in Germany in terms of defence spending, but other countries as well spending more. And the EU strategic compass and what's called PESCO, they're detailed programmes, but what they basically mean is that European... It's not just being able to put into into the field 5,000 people in in a rapid reaction force, which is like the icing on the cake, and that's something that you could call the European army. But it's actually what in the jargon is called interoperability, if I can pronounce it, interoperability, which means that that they're using the same sort of tanks, they're using the same sort of armour, same sort of equipment, same sort of ammo, which they don't at the moment. So... A lot of these projects are actually designed stuff in the future, which they'll be able to use together. And that seems to me a good idea. I mean, I'm, I'm very cautious about military action anyway. I don't think it's mm. great. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Cold War or a Hot War warrior. But I, th- I think that, you know, recent stuff in Ukraine has proved that we do need to beef up that aspect of European defence. And I mean, it's been a quite a, a change from from Germany, as as, as you say. What, what are the other leaders of, of the EU? What do they think about this idea? What, what's what's Macron's take on the idea of beefing up EU security force? Oh well, he's absolutely mustard keen on it. I mean, his whole thing is that Europe has to be able to stand alone. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I I'm slightly cynical about Macron, although he's a good thing in very many ways and certainly better than the alternatives mm. for France. Um, he, he talks about a Jupiterian, Jovian presidency, and I think he wants to, in some ways, in some ways, Britain and France are mirror images of each other in the way they approach military might and their imperial past and the European Union. Britain, of course, now has got out of the whole business wanting to go it alone but France wants to lead from the front and wants to as always I mean this goes back to de Gaulle wanted military power within Europe to be an alternative to America now I think that's arguably a dangerous thing to want I mean as you say peacekeeping operations in Africa that's one thing there's stuff that the 
Americans don't want to do, can't do, aren't bothered about doing mainly. Mm. I mean, I think it's slightly a myth. There are those in Washington who worry about the EU going it alone, but it's slightly a myth that they worry about it. If they can get them to beef up their actions and do stuff America doesn't want, they're perfectly happy with that. But I think this whole case, the crisis, the terrible crisis we're seeing in Ukraine underlines the need for a transatlantic alliance because would the European Union have acted alone here, even if it had a bigger force? Maybe it would have done, you can't tell, you know, but it seems it's one where you need the might of America behind you. And I think that's, you know, we'll get on to talking about some of the divisions within the European Union, no doubt. Mm. But I think it's where you see some of the Eastern countries very glad that they in NATO, they want the EU to beef up its own defence forces, its own ability to act. But they don't really want it acting independently, I don't think. No, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, the, the thought of a beefed up um, EU force of, of some kind, Obviously, people need to supply that with weapons, don't they? And it would be it would be very interesting to see what the uh, you know we have a, 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 a highly uh, highly effective arms military supply industry in this country. I wonder how much of uh, how our, our uh, bids to to be part of that would be how seriously that would be taken. Yeah, um, I think that's a really interesting point, that, and something I intend to look at in the future is what this means for the relationship between. Britain and the and the I was going to say the rest of the and the European Union mm. now because I think it, Britain would have to be part of any defence alliance and yes. interestingly enough Boris as Johnson has been boosting the idea of the what's called the expeditionary force which is something led by Britain made made up of other countries some in NATO some not some in the European Union some not but it, largely from the eastern countries and the Scandinavian countries. And that that's meant as some sort of rapid reaction force. Now, whether that in the end would have to be integrated into, uh, not integrated necessarily, but coordinated at least with the European Union is interesting. But I think Britain's going to get pulled back into the fold to a certain extent, although the more clumsy Johnson becomes about his relations with other people, the less likely that is um, with his recent daft comments about Brexit and the Ukrainians. Yes, um, got him disinvited from the summit, as I understood. Yes, I mean, just in, just incredible, really. And let's let's turn to that idea of of Ukraine inside the EU. Then, I mean, Vladimir Zelensky, you you, you mentioned his speech uh, where he said the the EU would be stronger with Ukraine inside. U, Ukraine would be a lonelier place uh, without it. He wants them on a fast track to membership. It's fair to say that the idea hasn't generated immediate enthusiasm apart from some approving noises where are the the, again where are the big players inside the eu on this well lithuania is leading a group called i don't know how to pronounce this ukraine eu crane and they are saying put them on a fast track now they deserve it the whole process of integration into the european union shows the worth of uh, worth of it and uh, the way it improves countries, the way that it keeps them up to the democratic mark, put them on a fast track. There's some reports suggest Ireland's, I haven't been able to track this down, but Ireland's involved in that as well, giving it backing, but it's mainly the eastern countries, uh, minus Hungary and minus Romania that are involved in that. 
So they're very keen on getting a fast track for Ukraine. Now, how fast a track, what that actually means in practice, they haven't spelt out. They just want it, as I'm arguing for, some sort of symbol. Now, leading the those who are either hostile or cautious is the Dutch, the French, the Germans and the Spanish. Now, obviously, they're very powerful countries indeed, and they've got their way. And I thought the, the reason I started the article with Zelensky's quote, so passionate, we've proven mm -hmm. our strength, we've proven a minimum, we're exactly the same as you are, so prove you're with us, prove you're Europeans indeed. Now you contrast that with what Macron said after the Versailles summit. And he, um, I mean, the, the, you know, there were noises there about they are part of the European family. Yes. But he said, can we open a membership procedure with a country at war? I don't think so. Can we shut the door and say never? That would be unfair. Can we forget about the balance points in that region? Let's be cautious. So not exactly a great enthusiasm. And of course, they referred it to the European Commission. Now, as maybe people should know, but maybe don't always, but I mean, it's the European Council, the presidents and prime ministers that provide the political will within the European Union. So if they said, we've got to do this, we've got to sound really enthusiastic we've got to show uh, courage in this one that would have happened now once you refer it to the commission it inevitably not wrongly because that's their job they are in a sense although they're a politicized bureaucracy they are a bureaucracy yes they're a talking shop oh yeah yeah and it's going to get bogged down in the commission in detail yes and so you know it doesn't mean it won't happen it doesn't mean there won't be a faster slightly faster track than there is at the moment but I suspect it, they'll, they'll go back to their list of criteria, tick off the points where Ukraine is ready, tick off the points where it's not ready. And a fairly recent report before all this blew up, but or at least before the latest crisis blew up, a report into Ukraine's readiness suggested that the corruption was such a depth mm. and level that it wasn't anywhere near ready. So I think that it's going to get stuck in the mud. It is true to say that even if we admitted Ukraine tomorrow, I think you say this in the piece, don't you? There's there's no real way that they could practically join tomorrow and 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 start. Um, you know, Zelensky's got more important things to worry about than uh, than uh, than how to to you know get Ukraine's uh, meat processing up to certain EU standards and stuff like that, and free. And then there's currency and free movement and stuff like that. Would it just be symbolic then, or or, or is that? Is that the point of, of, of admitting, trying to admit Ukraine quickly, fast-tracking Ukraine? I think it's the point. I think it is symbolic. I mean, yeah, I do say in the article that practically if the war stopped tomorrow, they wouldn't be ready to join it. So the country's smashed up. It's destroyed. Mm. Half its people are absent. because they, they wouldn't be ready to join the European Union. So what I think they need is not saying, you know, yes, they're going to join tomorrow and you're going to have to get abandon all the normal criteria and all the things and meat processing goodness gracious that reminds me of going around Romania with Nigel Farage looking at their meat processing well where uh, well let's let's leave that I didn't there. I didn't convince him it was a good idea I must say um that's one side I think what I'm looking for what I'm saying the European Union should adopt is something that is precisely a symbol saying yes Ukraine is smashed up yes it's destroyed as a or half destroyed as a country it needs to be rebuilt and and i haven't you know aligned on one particular thing i suggest maybe 
giving Ukrainian citizens temporary uh, Ukrainian citizens temporary EU citizenship. I say maybe that you could have a special commissioner for looking at Ukraine's problems. You could give them, I mean, invent some special candidate status that elevates them as a symbol. I mean, I hope this doesn't happen and it looks increasingly that it's not going to. But, you know, you could be looking at a, a Vichy type situation where Ukraine is occupied and the government is in exile. Mm. Now, obviously, France didn't cease to exist during the Second World War as a nation, but its its leadership, its courage, its symbolism was in uh, symbolized by the Cross of Lorraine was, was in the Free French operating from London. Mm. You know, could the Ukrainians operate from Brussels? Could they have a much beefed up presence in in uh, in the centre heart of the European Union? So I think some sort of symbolic gesture, and the symbolic gesture I'm talking about is two fingers up at Putin. Yes. Saying that they are Europeans, they are, have the right, and again, I'm not, you know, indulging in some sort of Cold War rhetoric. This isn't about East and West. It's saying, in a sense, that Eastern Europe is part of Europe as much as the Western Europe is a part of Europe, and, and that... It's about choice, essentially. It's about a, a democratic system that allows people to choose which alliance they go for. And it's not about Biden and Putin carving up the world and saying, that's yours, that's mine. You can have that in return for that. It's absolutely not about that. And because this does headbutt against a difficulty the European Union has long had, had ever since it began, in a sense, or before it, certainly before it was the European Union, where does it stop? What are its limits? Yes. What are its ambitions? Yes, that's. I mean, that is a, a, a crucial point, isn't it? And and th and this really is a, a crucial moment for the EU, as I see it. With you know, with you've got the well, who's who's waiting? Who's been waiting to join Albania, North Macedonia, Serbia, Turkey? Um, are, have all been waiting to join. Now, now we have Ukraine, Moldova, all the. the Georgia, Kosovo, the, the, the places that are worried that it might be, you know, is it going to be us next? What what are the, I mean, is it time that the EU actually said this is where, for them to redefine the boundaries of Europe or define the boundaries of Europe and just say, look, this is, this is, this is the club and whoever wants to be in it can join? Yeah, I think it's something they've got to take a hard look at. I wouldn't want to be prescriptive about what the answer should be. Mm. But I was struck in the researching the articles, the quote I came across from Prodi, who was the commission president at the time. And this was two years before the big expansion, which saw 10 new countries join. He said, we can't have an EU that's jelly, like jelly. And when it was put to him that the Georgians, as who, who you mentioned, have recently asked people to put on a fast track for membership as well as Ukraine and Moldova. He said, well, when he was asked, you know, but the Georgians see themselves as Europeans. He said, well, so do people in New Zealand. You can't have a limitless area that's the European Union. Now, it seems to me, Georgia in particular with its history is European, should be considered as European. Now, how, how and of course, Europe, the EU will change. The more countries that are absorbed, the more countries that come into it, and the more that's from the east, more that are from the east, not the west, and even have the weight of power on their side, just out of sheer numbers, mm. it will change. And that's something that may, has made, made EU leadership in Brussels and in France and Germany 
nervous and not surprisingly i mean this was encouraged by a cynical british foreign office that saw enlargement an unlovely expression for growing in size and you try and google enlargement and uh, i was well i was looking up something i'd miswritten on on uh, on it in the past and i googled mardell enlargement i didn't like what came up dear oh dear i'm sure your um, email inbox is, is much more fruitful though exactly but anyway, I mean, the the point is that the British policy for a long time was the larger the EU gets, the less ability it will have to go deeper, yes. have to go towards further integration. And that's right. I mean, it's not, not only obvious in a sense, but it also was a remarkably uh, cynical and successful move. I mean, the EU has been for the last 10 years or so, like a, uh, a boa constrictor that's, or a python that's absorbed a goat and has to lay there digesting it. Mm. And of course, you know, this is part of the problem as well. The Eastern membership has proved problematic, not just in terms of coming up to economic scratch, which on the whole has happened okay, but it's been governance over corruption in countries like Bulgaria, and Romania, and of course Poland and Hungary causing huge problems with the idea of illiberal democracy and seeing a different, different route and more, uh, well, more populist, more right-wing than many in the mainstream original EU countries would like. Yes, that's right, and of course, uh, and of course, Poland. You know, Poland have, have, have kind of shown up in in in, in this crisis in a way that. Um, that many of us didn't expect. And, and I guess we should just end by talking about the 4 million people now, isn't it, who are displaced by, so far for this, by, by the, so far by this invasion. I mean, in, in the, if, if Ukraine was part of the EU, clearly the people who, of Ukraine in normal times would have the right to live and work and, and, and uh, bring up their children wherever they wanted within the EU. At the moment, as far as we know, of these 4 million people who've been displaced, only, was it 2,300 have made their way to Britain? What does that tell us about how good our response has been to the, to the, the refugee crisis? Well, it tells us it's terrible and one should be ashamed of the country. I mean, I think before we get on to that, I mean, it is fair to say that a lot of the Ukrainians who fled believe hope feel it's possible that the war will soon be over and they can go yes. home. And they want to so be they're near, staying yeah. nearby. And also they probably have more in common, many of them, with people in Poland and Moldova, so that they're reasonably comfortable there being there. So it's not necessarily their choice not to come to, to Britain. But I think given the gung-ho approach of Johnson towards Putin... And I think they have, the Ukrainians have been grateful for the armed help Ooh. that he's given them. Um, we've been slow off the mark in terms of sanctions, slower than cracking down on London grad, as it's been called, than many would have liked. But I think the really shameful response has been over the refugees. I mean, it's got speeded up. But the original suggestion that they could come here if they picked fruit, I mean, it was just... You wonder what is going through these idiots' minds. You know, it's not something you just say drunk on a Friday afternoon and or you if it's the sort of thing you expect somebody to say 
you know, in that sort of in the pub of a stupid comment, and it was the minister of the dispatch box saying it. And I think this all springs from, I mean, I think there's a desire in, in even in the government in some senses to show the generosity. I think the apparatus is creaky because the Home Office, and here I blame May as much as Johnson, in fact, more, and pretty Patel for not challenging it. The Home Office is designed to be anti-immigration, designed mm. to be anti-refugee. And I think that they've been appalling in their response and they haven't really, I mean, and, you know, and I, it's one of the things that makes me despair generally about politics is that we've been, I'm trying to not swear, we've been fiddling around with Brexit and so forth and so, so many different things like that, Partygate and all the nonsense that crops up instead of stepping back and thinking what big things we need to do in the world. Somebody said the other day on the radio, nobody could have foreseen a, Ukraine, a crisis in Ukraine that would lead to so many refugees. That's absolutely right. But anybody in the world could foresee there would be another refugee crisis, whether it was caused by climate change or war or simply the economic drag from the West. It was clear there'd be another refugee crisis and we should have had our ducks in a row to deal with that. And it's that sort of lack of long-term thinking that makes me despair. Yes, but we can send out a van saying this is now a hostile environment. and <laughs> Please, please yeah. don't go. Uh, let's leave it there. Mark Mardell, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can read Mark on whether the EU should fast-track Ukraine into the Union. Uh, in the current issue of the New European, to get full access to the New European Archive with all Mark's previous articles for us, you can subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Before we enter the Hall of Shame, I want to remind you about a special series of podcasts from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The New European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or download in the same new European feed where you found this episode. 
Uh, and while we're talking about podcasts, a reminder that series one and two of Great European Lives with Charlie Connolly are available now. They tell the life stories of remarkable Europeans in short 10-minute bites. A wonderful listen, Great European Lives is available where you've got this podcast. And if you'd like to do us to do more podcasts and you want to support that, uh, then please subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally. Bill Wiggin MP is in the Hall of Shame. He said this week, why can't we get the right people through our immigration system? We want Ukrainians, we want Qataris, we don't want people in rubber boats. To which I say, why can't we get the right people through the system to be our MPs? We want people who care, we want people who are clever, we don't want racists in rubber underpants. Uh, Cheryl Murray and Kemi Badenoch MPs are in the Hall of Shame. They want a Margaret Thatcher Day. That's a brilliant idea, as long as it ends in the same way as Guy Fawkes Night. Uh, Andrew Marr is in the Hall of Shame. He said on LBC, the very idea that the Prime Minister should resign because of lockdown parties seems a little uh, quaint since there is a war on. Uh, and of course, getting rid of Neville Chamberlain when there was a war on worked out really badly back in the 1940s. So let's not do that again, shall we? Anne Widdicombe is back in the Hall of Shame with a terrible column in the Terrible Daily Express. Uh, and she says this, a correspondent writes that there should be a national woke register easily accessible to all. This would enable members of the public to decide which firms they should avoid if they do not like woke cancel culture and priorities. It is certainly an intriguing notion with some jolly possibilities. Well, before she organises registers and boycotts of the woke karate, I'd like to refer Unwittycombe to some wise words. What's happened to the view that we once held, which was that however strongly you disagree with somebody, nevertheless, you defend their right to express their view. And those words, of course, were written by Anne Widdicombe when she was against boycotts and no platforming and that sort of thing, instead of now when she appears to be for boycotts and no platforming and that sort of thing. Incidentally, the tactics that her correspondent is describing are the same tactics that are used now by organisations like Stop Funding Hate. I never knew Anne Widdicombe was such a fan of Stop Funding Hate. I want to end where we began with Boris Johnson. Asked about our tanking exports in a Commons Committee this week and about the idea that while the big EU countries' exports are recovering after the pandemic, British exports are still struggling badly. He was asked, so what could be the difference between European countries that can still export to their nearest neighbours without impediments and, and the difference between them and Britain, which has thrown up obstacles to doing that? And he was asked explicitly whether the crashing in Britain, British exports had got anything to do with Brexit. Even Rishi Sunak has now admitted that it, it does. This is what Boris Johnson said in reply. A lot of British companies could sell abroad much more than they do. There is no natural impediment to our exports. It is just will and energy and ambition. So there you go, you lazy businessman. Your troubles are not his Brexit's fault. They're all your fault for lacking will and energy and ambition. And if you want to see the real benefits of Brexit, you'll just have to hold your horses, which, as Cockneys would say, is a right load of pony and trap. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Rood.
Thanks too to Mark Mardell. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and you can give us nice ratings, lovely reviews too. Listen to our new podcast, The 27. It's available in this podcast stream, and Series 1 and Series 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives are available wherever you got this podcast. If you like what we do, please subscribe to The New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group and follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can even follow me on Twitter, if you like, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. So until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the city of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.